Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome to the latest edition of the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. We're going to talk a little bit about the trade deadline today. We're going to talk about how we can use StatCast to include, uh, improve wins above replacement with Dave Cameron of Fangraphs later on. First, right now, we have Anthony DiComo of MLB.com, and if I'm not mistaken, a fellow Boston University Terrier. Anthony, welcome to the show. That's right. Go BU Hockey. I'd love to hear it. Well, I have to ask you a question. Literally nobody else can care about this except for you and I. T. Anthony is your BPA. I, you know, I was a big T. Anthony's guy. More than that, I was a big T's Pub guy, which they got rid of shortly after I graduated and then and then brought back. But um, T. Anthony's was was the go-to. You've made the right answer, and uh, I'm glad we're off to a good start there. <laughs> so let's talk about what the Mets. What does that cast say on that? Oh, boy. Well, BP is gone, so I guess whatever the numbers okay. are, T. Anthony wins. We'll never know. <laughs> uh, let's get to the Mets, and you're obviously at the ballpark for the game right now against the Padres. Mets fans are obviously, you know, screaming for a big bat. But if you look at it, it's the end of July. They're only, what, a couple games behind the Nationals. This is something they would have bought, you know, 10 times a week back in the winter if they told them. Why are they not seeming as happy as you might think? Well, because the offense is still, I mean, even what they've added in Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson to the lineup, it's still, you know, it doesn't put this lineup over the top. This is still regardless of what they've done over the past few days, a below-average lineup. I think everyone knows that. I think everyone understands that. Um, I think it's pretty clear, not that the Mets can't win with what they have right now, but that one more piece could make a significant difference. Um, you know, I think the Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe thing, it did excite people. I think it would have excited people a lot more if it had happened a month earlier or even two months earlier, uh, back when... Daniel Murphy was on a disabled list, as well as David Wright, as well as Travis Darnell. Um, not that these guys can't help now. They've helped already, obviously. But um, it, it, it's just it's something that, that the Mets have needed for a while. Uh, I think that was obvious to everyone around here. I think that was obvious to everyone involved. Um, and, and, sure, better late than never. But I, I do still think there's moves that the Mets need to make, should make, can make. And uh, I think there's a decent chance they will make in the couple of days before the trade deadline. You know, I think you're absolutely right about that, because when Juan Uribe initially was traded from the Dodgers to the Braves, uh, the trade didn't really seem to make much sense for a Braves team that's not really going anywhere. And even at the time, it was like, you know, Juan Uribe would just be a perfect fit for the Mets. You know, why do you think it took them so long to even make a minor upgrade like that? Uh, You know, I think a lot of it, a large part of it is just how the market is. I think prices on guys tend to go down as you get toward the, toward the trade deadline. Now, yeah, Uribe was traded once. Uh, at that time, I think the Mets were still a lot more optimistic uh, 
that David Wright could be back sooner rather than later. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, and, you know, a team maybe with more money to burn, maybe with more resources to burn, would have just said, well, we don't know what's up with David Wright, so we'll trade for a third baseman and, and go from there. And when David comes back, we'll deal with it. Uh, the Mets weren't really thinking in those terms at that time. They were thinking more, hey, hopefully David Wright comes back in three weeks and we're good and there's no point in trading for a third baseman. So I, I think all those things went into it. Um, but what's done is done. And now Juan Uribe is here. Uh, now Kelly Johnson's here. Now Daniel Murphy's still here. And they've got a bunch of guys who can play third base. Uh, it's pushed some other guys like Wilmer Flores uh, to the fringe. Uh, you're probably not going to see a ton of playing time from him going forward. But, but the net result is obviously a positive for the Mets. So we're about a day and a half or so away from the trade deadline as we sit here on Wednesday night. And I think everybody expects the Mets to make a trade for an outfielder. Maybe that's Ioannis Cespedes, Rajay Davis, uh, Venable, Para, somebody like that. But what's interesting is, is something you tweeted today that I hadn't really realized, and that's Juan Ligaris is not really the starting center fielder anymore, is he? It's Kirk Neuenheis playing these days, and that's interesting because last year, you know, Ligaris was probably the best defensive center fielder in baseball, and we know his arm's been hurt. But I didn't really think there was anything wrong with his legs, and it seems like his range has really been down. What have you seen from him? Yeah, and that's sort of the million-dollar question. I mean, I, I've asked people why that is because you're right. I think he's obviously been hurting with the arm, we had an elbow issue last year. It's, it's clearly not 100%, and that's affected his throwing arm. And you look at the advanced metrics, and he's still, you know, a, a plus, you know, a net positive on, on defense. The arm is the one thing that really has been a net negative for him. Uh, and yet, he's not making the plays that we're accustomed to seeing him make. He's not, uh, you know, just being spectacular, essentially. And that's why the Mets gave Juan Lagares uh, a long-term deal to stay here, bought out his arbitration years and all that, uh, because they thought regardless of his development with the bat, and the Mets thought he, he would be better. He, he's actually regressed a little bit. The Mets thought he would be better than he is offensively. Uh, their thinking was even if the bat doesn't pan out, the glove will always be great. Well, it hasn't been great. And the reason, I, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a good reason for it. I, I don't know why. Uh, obviously, the arm injury is part of it. He had sort of a side injury early, earlier in the season that affected him as well. But it shouldn't affect his routes to balls. It shouldn't affect um, really making not even the most difficult plays, but just the more difficult plays that he did with ease last year. Uh, he's not making. So, until that happens, until he shows that he's a better player and he's not got much of an opportunity down the stretch here, no, he's not the starter. Uh, you're going to see Kirk Neuenheis starting against right-handed pitchers for as long as he's hitting. And, uh, you know, if the Mets make a deal for someone like a Gerardo Parra just to play a Neuenheis, then that's the bat that's going to get the most time. Uh, right now the Mets are in win-now mode, and uh, regardless of their commitments to this guy for 2016, 2017, and beyond, if he's not performing, he's not going to be on the field. Yeah, I looked it up this morning. He is among Ulgaris is among center fielders, 19th in average distance covered with about 53 feet. You know, you'd expect him to be number one or number two or three by a lot. And, you know, obviously whatever's wrong with him, it's just kind of impeding his defense. Um, you know, uh, one yeah. issue we also need to talk about is Lucas Duda, right? So we looked it up. He's actually gotten above average exit velocity every single week for the last six weeks, which sounds great. But he's also striking out about 37% of the time in July, which is a total mess. What's his issue and, and can he turn it around? Yeah, I, I mean, the exit velocity is always going to be there with Duda. That, that is essentially, uh, you know, the famous reason why they chose Lucas Duda over Ike Davis when they had that choice to make last year was because they were convinced that this guy hits the ball so hard that he's just going to blossom. And what's, what's just bizarre to me about him is that he did blossom, and he was great for a while, and then all of a sudden he dropped off a cliff. Um, 
you know, he is striking out more, which is an issue. I think he was messed up for a long while at the plate with his mechanics. I think he's starting to get that back. Um, he's swinging at more pitches in general, which for a guy like that is probably going to result in more strikeouts over the long term. Uh, but you, you, it's alarming whenever you see a number that high, for sure. Um, the last, I would say, week to 10 days, he's been squaring balls up more regularly. So he might have found something in the cage. He might have found what he's been looking for a long time. And, hey, you know, in spring training, the thing that this guy was concentrating on more than anything was hitting lefties, really shortening up his swing to, to the point that even an amateur scout like me could see this guy was, was all but, you know, choking up a foot on the bat and trying to hit the ball the other way against lefties. So maybe that has something to do with, with the fact that, you know, against everyone, against right-handed pitchers and whatever he had, he went into that slump. Maybe it messed him up to some extent. That's just me sort of theorizing and, and philosophizing and whatnot. But, uh if he can get back to doing what he was doing in April, that all of a sudden it takes so much pressure off everyone else in the lineup because he is a legitimate middle of the order bat. The stats bear that out. This guy's got surreal power. Uh, he can change the face of a lineup just by just by being in it and being productive. So the Mets are, are very much hoping that that's the case going forward. And one of his teammates that fans don't seem to like much better, even though I think he's having a very good season, is Curtis Granderson. Um, I wrote last month he was actually having one of his better seasons. He's Oh, got a 122 weighted runs created plus. It's his second best since 2008. And uh, let me tell you, I heard from a lot of Mets fans. They're like, this guy's terrible. We can't stand him. I was on a local <laughs> radio show where the host just tore me apart because he thinks Curtis Granderson is the worst player in the world. Why, why don't Mets fans love him? Is it just because he's not hitting 40 homers anymore? I, I think a large part of it is because he's making so much money on an annual basis. Uh, you know, the contract is worth $15 million per. And, and last didn't produce. Uh, if you look at his numbers last year versus this year, I mean, he's having a much better season. He's already, we're almost at August 1st, not even, and he's accumulated more than twice as much wins above replacement as he had the full year last year. So he's obviously been much better. I wrote this down since June 4th. He's batting 283 with an 864 OPS. I think if you're a Mets fan going into that four-year $60 million contract, you sign up for four seasons of that. Uh, obviously, he hasn't provided it because the first season was a little bit of a dud in that respect. Um, but, yeah, no, I don't think there's much reason to, compl to complain right now, to be honest. I think he's making do this year. Um, I think if other people were hitting around him, he wouldn't be batting leadoff. I think you would have seen him bump down to third or fourth or even fifth in the lineup a while ago, and that's just more a product of what the Mets have and what the Mets don't have. But, uh, yeah, in terms of the sum, I think he's having a fine season. I don't know why, as a fan, you would be upset with it. So we have to turn to the Mets' young pitchers. Um, I wrote the other day that they're leading baseball in pitches over 95 miles an hour with 22.1% of their pitches uh, going over that speed. Uh, you're there every night, and I'm sure it's fascinating for you to watch. How do you explain someone like Jake DeGrom, who seems to be throwing harder as the season goes on and even harder than last year? It seems like he's on an upward peak, uh, which is actually a little unusual for pitchers. Yeah, and uh, Joe Trezza, our associate reporter out here with the Mets, wrote a, wrote a fun companion piece to that just on Kevin Ploiecki's glove, his catcher's mitt. Uh, taking a beating, and he's going to have to replace it soon because these guys all throw hard. Um, Jacob DeGrom's a really interesting one because coming up as a minor leaguer, not that he didn't throw hard, he always had that mid-90s, uh, but he didn't have throwing regularly 96, and then you look up and now he's throwing 97, 98. He's sitting 97. He's hitting 99. I mean, these are numbers we haven't seen from him. Uh, part of it is, is it is July. It is 
just because of the way the weather is and all that. But from everything you look at with Jacob deGrom, more than that, it's just genuine improvement. This guy has gotten better. This guy has gone from a fringe prospect, essentially, to a you know established major league pitcher and now to an established star major league pitcher, a guy who's going to compete for Cy Young Awards, certainly this year, uh, if not years to come. Um, it's It's a lot of mechanics for him. It's a lot of natural ability that he's just unlocking. And uh, I think some of it's confidence for him. I mean, I know that's kind of a cop-out, but, uh, but I think it is. I think he realizes now much more than he did a year ago at this time that not only that he belongs in the big leagues, but that he's one of the best. Um, and, you know, unlike Noah Syndergaard, who was so hyped coming out, Matt Harvey, who was so hyped coming out, and so on and so forth, this guy was not. And uh, he's really been a fascinating story as what he's been able to develop into. Are you surprised how quickly Syndergaard has really developed? I mean, the other night he was outstanding. Uh, I think if you look at the velocity leaderboards, he's got five different pitches where he'd be among the top 15 or so, depending on how you set the minimums. Uh, he really has not had a ton of struggles. I mean, he's stepped right in. Yeah, it, it has surprised me. Just because of his makeup a little bit, he's sort of a shyer type guy. He, he's not. He's certainly in no way the, the brash character that Matt Harvey is, who when he came in and, and came up, not as highly hyped of a prospect as Syndergaard was really, when Matt Harvey came in and succeeded pretty much right away, it didn't surprise anyone. Um, I thought Syndergaard would have some command issues coming up. Uh, he didn't like the world on fire for long stretches at AAA uh, and so on and so forth. So it, it is surprising. But, again, the, the story with this guy coming up, and I remember talking on our NL East podcast when he first came up, was the stuff is well beyond Major League caliber. The stuff is off the charts. It's as good as you're going to see in the big leagues. And as soon as he can harness it, he's going to get people out on a relative, uh, with relative ease. Um, he's obviously done it quicker than the Mets had hoped. The timeline has been severely shortened, and he's a legitimate major league pitcher now. The Mets are going to have to watch his innings because he's eating them up here if he's going seven and eight at a time every time out. But um, I don't think I'm surprised at all by what he's become. But, yeah, just the time frame in which he's become, it has, has shocked me a little bit. Anthony, final question for you. Right now on Wednesday night, the Mets are one game behind the Nationals. This weekend, the two go head-to-head. The Mets have Harvey, DeGrom, and Syndergaard lined up. Will we see a first-place Mets team at any point in August? That's a great question. Um, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say yes, just because they're playing really good ball right now, uh, and they do have that series with the Nationals coming up, and I think they'll, they'll play well. Uh, I'll go a caveat on that. I don't think the Mets are going to win this division. I think the Nationals are are going to get healthy. They get, they're getting healthier already, and I think they're going to pull away at the end. Uh, I think the Mets are going to battle it out for the wild card, but just given how close the race is now, it would not surprise me to see them peak out at, at first place at some point in August. Just the fact that that's a question we can even ask at the end of July has to be considered a win for the Mets, I think. Uh, Anthony DiComo, MLB. Absolutely, they would have signed up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Anthony, thanks so much for your time. Read Anthony DiComo at MLB.com and Mets.com. We're back on the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. With me, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. Dave, my friend, how are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you? Doing well. Dave, I want to talk, uh, you know, we're two days away, a day and a half from the trading deadline. Last year, last winter, you wrote a story about how stars never really get the, the return in trade that people expect, and you were talking about the Josh Donaldson trade, but you also mentioned the David Price trade and a couple other trades. You know, now that we've seen a couple of trades happen this week, I guess the Troy Tulitsky trade is number one on the list. Do you still think that's, that's true? Are people still going to be disappointed by the kind of trades we're going to see? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the adjustments that the game has made in terms of valuing players and especially kind of valuing contracts with star players, uh, valuing years of team control and player salary uh, has just changed probably faster than fan perception has changed. So, you know, five or ten years ago, it wasn't that unusual to see, you know, the Eric Bedard trade, right, where it was two years of a, of a pitcher with some injury history and making $10 million a year for, you know, Adam Jones is one of the best prospects in baseball, and Chris Tillman, who's one of the Mariners' best pitching prospects, and a bunch of other guys, including a major league reliever in George Sherrill, who turned out to be pretty good for the Orioles. Uh, we just don't see those kinds of trades anymore, and rightfully so, right? Like, that trade was a disaster for the Mariners. Teams shouldn't be making trades like that. So I think what we've seen is kind of, you know, a shift more towards, like, the Johnny Cueto trade, where the Royals gave up a good prospect in Brandon Finnegan, but not their best guy, and and certainly not even a guy who's a guaranteed star who might end up as a relief pitcher, uh, you know, is probably not quite ready to help a, a team right now. And a couple of lower-level guys with, you know, maybe a little bit of limited upside or guys who need some more development. And then these are the kinds of pieces that you see teams willing to trade now. And I think, uh, you know, even in, in deals like Donaldson and Tulowitzki, uh, we're seeing teams say, hey, look, if I've got a guy who I think I can really build around my team and have him for five, six, seven years, I'm just not trading that for a veteran that I might only have for a year or two. Now, I'm, I almost hate to ask you about specific players because Lord knows what could happen in the couple hours between us talking and this actually get posted, but I'm going to do it anyway. David Price, that trade last year was probably one of the most panned trades. Everybody really seemed to either hate it or not understand it, and they got Drew Smiley, uh, Nick Franklin, Willie Dames. Uh, you know, in theory, David Price should get less than that because last year he had a year and two months left, and now he's only got two months left. Do you think he's actually going to bring back a lot less than that? I think he will in the sense that I don't think that they're going to get anyone as good right away as Drew Smiley. I think that was one of the things that maybe people, or I disagreed with people a little bit. If I didn't hate that trade for the Rays quite as much because I looked at it and said, look, David, Drew Smiley is maybe a league average pitcher right now. You put him into that rotation, obviously the Rays uh, made it even better where he would turn into a average pitcher with some of the adjustments that he made in Tampa Bay. But like even in Detroit, this is a league average starting pitcher. Uh, that's a valuable thing. I mean, you see like league average starting pitchers in the free agent market getting 12, 13, 14 million dollars a year. Uh, so even if he didn't have like number one starter upside or wasn't a super sexy prospect to throw 97 miles an hour, this was a valuable asset which was already majorly ready and they could put it right on the team. I don't think Price is going to get back the Tigers, someone like that. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they got maybe similar levels of talent just further away. So maybe like the double A version of Drew Smiley is what David Price gets this time. And I think that trade would look a lot different now if Smiley hadn't destroyed his shoulder because he'd really made you know some nice improvements with Tampa Bay late last season. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, before, before Smiley got hurt, the Rays were winning that trade far away. Uh, I also want to bring up something else that you just wrote, I think, earlier this week. So, obviously, the Toronto Blue Jays traded for Troy Tulitsky in the middle of the night, and so the entire East Coast, including myself, woke <laughs> up and said, what the hell just happened? Uh, the initial yeah. reaction I saw from a lot of people, which was understandable, the Jays can hit the ball better than anybody else. They can't pitch the ball. Why in the world are they trading for another power hitter? Uh, and you made the argument that an upgrade is an upgrade, a run is a run. It's not necessarily about you know identifying a particular weakness. It's just about making your team better overall. Do you think that that's a difficult concept for for people to understand? Yeah, I think so. I think and it's it's something that you know even teams I think have a little bit of a, a problem, not just playing for the let's balance out our strengths and weaknesses approach because you know it's generally easier to fix a weakness, right? If you've got like a flat tire on your car at the same time you're you know have a quarter tank of gas, like yeah, you need gas, but you have a flat tire, you're gonna go put air in your tire and go get a new tire, right? Before you're like, well, I also need gas, but you do need gas, right? And so uh, I think kind of identifying that you have multiple issues at the same time or, you know, uh, kind of prioritizing not your weakest weakness uh, and saying, you know what, I'm going to go do this instead and maybe 
live with my weakness and kind of hope I can offset it isn't something that people are kind of used to doing. You generally just want to, you know, fix the weakest link in your fence. Uh, but in baseball, it's not necessarily uh, the case that you need to just have a balanced team that's not bad at anything. You can win with an unbalanced roster. I mean, I think, you know, the 2004 Red Sox just mashed the heck out of the baseball with Manny Ramirez in the outfield. They didn't really care uh, that they were letting run score by putting a bad defense on the field. They just, uh, you know, beat everyone's brains in with offense. You can win that way as long as you score enough runs. I haven't seen a lot of excitement from Colorado fans about this deal, which is a little unfair because I do think Jeff Hoffman is a, is a pretty good prospect. Uh, but this kind of goes back to the same thing with the Stars, right? The, people, the return is just not what people thought it would be for a player of his caliber. Do you think the real lesson here is that they hung on to him for a year too long, two years too long? Like, what do you think they could have gotten had they traded him a while back? Yeah, absolutely. I do like the annual trade value series, where I kind of rank, including contracts, the most valuable trade chips in baseball. And last year, I had Troy Tulitsky at number seven or number eight or something. He was in the top ten, for sure. This year, he wasn't on the list. So I think the combination of the injury in the second half of last year, which reminded people that this is still a guy who has lots of health problems, the fact that he's a year older, that he's not really hitting for power this year, uh, and he's now 30 years old, I think there's there a lot of added risk this year that wouldn't have been in play, you know, 13, 14 months ago when he was you know, the best player in the National League before he got injured last year. If they would have traded him a year ago, I think you were legitimately looking at, you know, name almost any prospect in baseball and throw in some other guys, and that's what they would have gotten for him because this legitimately looks like an MVP candidate in the peak of his career making, you know, a fraction of what he's worth. Now you look at it and say, well, a guy coming off a bunch of injuries who's not having that good of a year, maybe he's a little bit underpaid, but there's a lot of risk that, you know, especially if he has to move to third base or even DH. Uh, you know, at the end of his career, this, the rest of his contract's not all that valuable. And I, and I imagine a year from now, uh, maybe the Reds with Todd Frazier, the Brewers with Jonathan Lucroy, they'll look back and go, oh, we really should have traded him when we could because now we're not going to get as much value. I mean, they're not going to trade those guys, but they're pretty much at the peak of their value, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think Lucroy's actually on the way down, too. I think, you know, last year, Lucroy uh, finished in the top 10 in NL MVP voting. Uh, I had an MVP vote last year. I think I had him second. <laughs> I, uh, I, I got some... Uh, the lack for that from, uh, I think, from you, actually, uh, among other people who are surprised how high I have Lucroy in the MVP. But this is a guy who's a legitimate, uh, you know, one of the best players in baseball. Now you look at it, he's not really hitting this year. He's now an aging catcher. He's going you know, be a free agent at the, after the age 31 season. You're looking at it like, okay, a couple of years of a, of a good but maybe not great anymore catcher. Uh, this is the kind of guy that you give up good prospects for, but, not, you know, give up the farm for him. So I think the Brewers probably already missed the boat on that. If they don't trade Carlos Gomez this week, they're going to miss the vote again. But, yeah, Todd Frazier is another example of a guy that uh, a mid-market franchise maybe getting a little too attached to a guy who isn't a long-term building block. Uh, you know, Frazier's not 23 or 24. He's 29 years old. This is a guy that should be traded. All right, let's move off of uh, trade deadline stuff for a minute to Mike Trout, best player in baseball. I'm going to write about him soon. I think you are as well. Isn't it odd that people just seem to not really be noticing that this is the best player of a generation having his best season? I mean, he's really made a big step up. The last couple of years, he's had a weighted runs created plus between 167 and 176. Now it's up to 190. He did the one thing that nobody really thought was possible, which is that he actually got better. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, kind of growing up in the you know 80s and early 90s when I kind of started really getting into sports, I remember this was kind of like, you know, Michael Jordan's prime, right? Like he was coming of age and turning into the best basketball player of all time, right as I was really getting into basketball and, and the Seattle Phonics where I grew up, had a good team and I had to play Jordan in the finals uh, one year. And so I, I watched a decent amount of Michael Jordan in prime, and I remember like he didn't win an MVP a couple of years because I think people just got bored of giving it to him, and people were like looking for reasons like Carl Malone or Charles Barkley was better. 
And in retrospect, you're like, well, this is the silliest thing I could possibly imagine. Like, Michael Jordan was the best basketball player of all time and clearly had, like, a, you know, one of the great runs in sporting history. And we were looking for alternate storylines because we just got tired of saying the same thing over and over. And I feel like, you know, Trout's not the Jordan of basketball or of baseball, but he's not that far off of it. Uh, what he's doing is, is historically uh, not quite unprecedented, but pretty close. And we're, we're really looking at, you know, the best young player that we've ever seen and maybe we'll ever see. We're looking at a guy who's our generation's version of Mickey Mantle, but better, and we're not necessarily appreciating it because we're just kind of used to it at this point. We have a 23-year-old who hits like Miguel Cabrera and plays center field and runs the bases really well. Uh, this guy, you know, he's maybe a year and a half away from having a legitimate Hall of Fame career and he's, you know, he'll be 25 at that point. That's exactly what I was about to say. I was going to say, if he retired on his 25th birthday, you know, kind of still going on the same path, if you waived the 10-year limit, he'd probably be a slam dunk Hall of Famer at that point, which is just the most absurd thing to say when you think about it at 25. I really should yeah, have... I think I I'm sorry, go ahead. His yeah. career stats against Kirby Puckett uh, not too long ago. He's going to catch Kirby Puckett in career war probably next July or August. And Kirby Puckett, you know, had a shortened career and kind of got put into the Hall of Fame because people gave him credit for the rest of his career that he would have had if he didn't get hit in the eye and, and have to retire early. I think if we can say if Trout can basically have Kirby Puckett's career, but in half the time, uh, you know, there's precedent. Put him in the Hall of Fame, even if he doesn't do anything after his 24th or 25th birthday. He should be working on his fourth consecutive MVP award, uh, and I'm never going to let that torch die. Let's move to wins above replacement. So, Fangraph wins above replacement. It's obviously, you know, one of the two versions of war that everybody uses. Uh, and it's always the defensive input that kind of, you know, confuses everybody. Uh, so we know that Fangraph's war runs on UZR, ultimate zone rating. And I think you'd be the first to say that partial seasons of UZR are not necessarily the, the most concrete numbers in the world. Uh, now that you know, you know, the kind of data that StackCast is able to do, if, let's say, as a parting gift for being a guest on this show, you were to get full access to the entire database... What kind of? I'm holding you to that. Well, yeah, hypothetically, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, but if you could do that, how? What would be the first steps you'd take to try to improve wins above replacement to try to, you know, alleviate some of the issues that we know exist in UCR? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things is we're always going to need something like UCR, right? Like, so the, the really neat data from StatCast with hang time and you know the the um, reaction speed and you know how far a guy moved and how long it took him. That's all you know really great input data. But the question we're trying to answer with wins above replacement, right, is needs to be kind of in a uniform currency and and really the for currency of baseball runs and wins uh, are kind of the building blocks. Of, of what teams use. And so you have to go from, you know, exit velocity and, and launch angle and those kinds of things into some kind of expected out number and from there kind of into an, a run-save number. So we're always going to need something like UVR. It doesn't necessarily have to be UVR, but I think even with StatCast bringing really great new input data, we're always going to need some kind of number that uh, essentially is a, a linear weights algorithm that turns those inputs into some kind of run-save number. And I think that's really where the input from StatCast is going to be really helpful is, is kind of tweaking our ability to say, you know, we estimate that the average fielder would have made this play 65% of the time or 85% of the time. Right now that's a, you know, a little bit of a speculative, uh, subjective approach from humans saying, you know, based on uh, where the ball was hit and how hard it was hit and, it, you know, the part of the field it was hit into, these are kind of the buckets that goes into. With StatCast data, we can certainly – uh, improve those rankings and say, you know, maybe instead of thinking that this ball was 30 to 60 percent likely to be caught or 20 to 40 percent, we can really say, you know, with some precision, we think that, you know, 24 percent of us, you know, the average center fielder makes this play 24 percent of the time. 
uh, and then we can really have a, a much better baseline, especially uh, in smaller samples with how much this play really mattered. And I think, you know, not even just the defensive component, but I'm really excited for what StatCap could do in just overhauling all of war because, right, if you have like a, a really kind of accurate play-by-play level uh, defensive measure, you can then apply that to the pitcher as well, right? So instead of just saying, well, the pitcher, you know, gave up this many runs and this many innings, if we can say, hey, look, the – uh, velocity off the bat and the angle and, and kind of where the ball went. Uh, we have an expected run matrix, uh, you know, with, with average fielders behind the pitcher uh, of, you know, a certain number for the pitcher on each play. We could add that up and come up with a better pitching estimator of what their contribution to run prevention was as well. So I, I think that not even just the defensive component, but also the pitching component could be uh, radically overhauled uh, when you give us this entire data set as soon as we stop talking. Uh, I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned the pitching component because I, I wanted to ask: Is WAR still doesn't really have uh, catcher framing included? And obviously, that's become such a big topic the last couple of years. And I know the reason is because to include credit for the catchers, you have to take credit away from the pitchers. Uh, you know, I know that's something that's been talked about with yourself and David Oppenman and whomever else. Are, are we any closer to get to that to getting catcher framing in WAR? Yeah, we're working on it. I mean, it's certainly something we recognize is a, is a real thing. It's not that we're just putting our heads in the sand and being like, catcher framing has no value. I mean, I think certainly when you look at Jonathan Lucro and Yadier Molina and, you know, every, every Molina that's ever been born, apparently, uh, these guys have a significant impact on their pitching staff. The question is, how comfortable are we saying that, you know, uh, say when David Price is in Tampa Bay and Jose Molina sets up off the plate on the no-two pitch, David Price throws the ball three inches off the plate because that's where Molina set up because he knows that Jose Molina is more likely to get that call. Are we willing to say, hey, David Price, you threw a bad pitch. Uh, that, that was a pitch that was a likely ball that Molina turned into a strike. So we're going to give Molina the, the run value credit for getting that pitch called a strike, and we're going to penalize you for throwing a pitch outside the strike zone. That's one of the tricky things that I think when you just talk about adding catcher framing into war, and you say, we're going to now go the extra step and penalize pitchers for throwing uh, out-of-zone pitches to good framing catchers. That's a little bit tricky and not as straightforward a handle as just saying, okay, let's just give the catchers this credit without doing any deduction on the pitcher side. And I think we're, we're really hesitant to make a change that we can 100% stand behind and say, we know that this is the correct way to do it. We don't want to just make a significant change to work. We know people do use it and they look at the numbers. And we don't want to be tweaking it every couple months and say, oh, man, we, we input that wrong. And I think we're, we'd rather be a little bit slow on the update rather than have to, you know, change it seven times and have to revise it every couple of weeks and have people lose credibility or lose faith in the credibility of the metric. Well, believe me, you run a site that employs Jeff Sullivan, so I have no doubt that you believe in the value of catcher framing. <laughs> yeah, you know, certainly if we didn't, we would have fired him long ago. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask, you know, you've been at this for a long time. Is it is it harder for you to write now? I mean, I know obviously there's many more stats and much more acceptance than there used to be, but everyone's so much smarter than they were a decade ago. Teams, the readers, I mean, you don't see a lot of those contracts where it's like, oh my God, you assigned Ryan Howard to what coming, you know, your way. Is, is that make it your job more difficult? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the low-hanging fruit of just saying, like, you know, the kind of the scorn posts have gone away for the most part. Like the Eric Bedard trade, right? I spent months, like, railing against the Eric Bedard trade before it ever went down of, like, explaining in gross detail why this is a disaster for the organization. And we just, you know, don't have those kinds of deals anymore, which is great for organizations who aren't making them. Uh, you know, I guess we occasionally have them. I, don't, you know, I might throw the Matt Kempers, the uh, money going Donald trade in that. But we, they're pretty rare, right? And so we don't have those kinds of just low-hanging fruit uh, that are very easy to explain. But at the same time, we also have a much more educated fan base who just doesn't necessarily need to know 
the same things they needed to know five years ago. And I think this is one of the, the challenges that has made our jobs harder because there are so many people out there who are writing such smart commentary about baseball that it's getting harder and harder to find new things to say and kind of uh, tell the audience things they don't already know. So, it's, you know, on one hand, it's great to have an educated audience that knows stuff. And on the other hand, it's like, man, when they catch up with you and you don't know anything more than they don't know, uh, what do you have to say? It's definitely uh, one of the cons of educating your audience. But, you know, I think that's really what we've always wanted to do is kind of uh, take Fangraphs readers and teach them, you know, how, how the game works, uh, at least as best as we can understand it. We're, we're glad that people have kind of uh, come around to seeing the game maybe in a slightly more educated way than they used to be. Dave, final question. Is there a man on earth who is happier that StatCast can measure spin rates better than PitchFX could than Eno Cyrus? Probably not. Eno really does love spin rates. I think, uh, you know, if, if, Eno, if spin rates could also teach Eno how to pronounce players' names, then that would maybe be like the, the most perfect thing. If you can get StatCast to work on a pronunciation metric, uh, so where Eno actually knows how to say people's names when he interviews them, then you'll really have a home run. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks to our guests, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com, and Anthony DeComo from MLB.com on the Mets beat. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. This has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast.